This is Hashtag History, episode 77. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And I was thinking, I'm just going to throw this on you all oh, God. Uh, Let's flip the script for this episode. We do this every now and then, just at the beginning, to do like our little closing spiel at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Instead. Yes. Yeah. Nothing else. I wasn't going to make you perform a song or anything. Okay. Just- for one, several times in an episode, we look at pictures together and describe them, yeah. and we want you to be able to see those. Yes. So make sure you check us out on Instagram at hashtag history underscore podcast, where we post all of our pictures the same day the episodes drop. And then we also want to make sure you're following us on Instagram, because that's where we do like everything. Mm-hmm. Um, we get to talk to all of you over there. We promote other podcasts that we're listening to and really enjoying. We make announcements about things like live shows and trivia nights and guest episodes and all that stuff. Yeah. And then make sure you also check us out um, on our website at hashtag history-pod.com. That's where we post all the sources we use to put together our episode. And when I say we, I mean Rachel. And And you can listen to all of our episodes on there as well. You can check out our super cute merch there. Yeah. I was just about to say, like, sure, I do like all the sources or whatever for to put together the episodes, but you created the website and you created our merch. Okay. So like 90% of that you do. Okay. Um, But speaking of that super cute merch, wouldn't you love to get 15% off of it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That was just a shameless plug there. If you are interested in supporting the show, come join our Patreon for only a dollar a month. You get 15% off all of our merchandise. You get a personalized card and sticker, bonus weekly hashtag hangout episodes, behind the scenes content, All the good stuff. Yeah. And if $1 a month is too much of a commitment for you, but you still want to support the show, you can make a one-time $5 donation and sponsor a cocktail instead. Yeah. And that's been super fun. Yeah. And if you sponsor a cocktail, we always give an on-air shout out. Yeah. That's been super fun. That's something we just started doing this season. Yeah. And people have been like really awesome and supportive and amazing. Yeah. So I think that's it. Yeah. That's our spiel. That's the spiel. So this week we are talking about Lance Armstrong, the only professional cyclist to win seven Tour de France titles, all before it was revealed more than a dozen years after his first win that he had been using performance enhancing drugs in every single one of his Tour de France wins from 1999 to 2005. This news was particularly devastating to those that admired and supported Armstrong through his 1996 cancer diagnosis when he learned at only 25 years old that he had stage 3 testicular cancer and that that cancer had already spread to his lungs, brain, abdomen, and lymph nodes. To come back from what his doctors initially determined as a less than 50% chance of living, to not only survive that, but to then go on to achieve not one, not two, not three, but seven titles in what is considered by many to be the most difficult sporting event in the world was unbelievable. Yeah. The only thing more unbelievable than his miraculous rise to the top was that he had cheated and lied the whole way there. Yeah. I have a quick quote of Armstrong's for you to read, Leah, because I think it's great to really showcase what kind of guy we're dealing with here before we dive into all the details. So Go ahead. Okay. If you consider my situation, a guy who comes back from arguably, you know, a death sentence, why would I then enter into a sport and dope myself and risk my life again? That's crazy. (laughs) I would never do that. No, no way. The evidence will show that that was not the case. So he's just (laughs) a really good liar. Or not. Just a really smug, arrogant person. Yeah. But we will dive into all of those details after we have a drink. Sweet. I'm Rachel, 
And I'm Leah. And this is Hashtag History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike. Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Yay! <laughs> I didn't try drinking this one once. <laughs> I've been trying this whole time. I am a little parched. Okay. So, firstly, we have to give a huge shout out to this week's cocktail sponsor, the History of Cologne podcast. Yay! Thank you. They said, Rachel and Leah, keep doing your thing. You're awesome. Here's to the next two years. I like rum. <laughs> Maybe you could put it in this episode's cocktail. Surely we could do that. Yeah, I am here to make dreams come true. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sponsoring the cocktail. Yes, thank you. Um, so I don't need to be asked more than once to drink a rum cocktail. No. I don't know about you. Nope. In fact, it's other than I really love whiskey, but rum's maybe my Yeah, it's it's the first easiest, second favorite. Yeah. Easiest alcohol to for me to consume. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. So I did some digging and found a cocktail called the Blue Bike, That's which great. relates to this week's topic because bikes. Bikes, yeah. <laughs> uh. Before I read off the ingredients, as always, I do have to say that I am nervy. <laughs> nervy. And here's okay. why. I'm ready. Okay, so here's what this cocktail contains. All good things, mm -hmm. just a lot of them. <laughs> it contains light rum. Okay, yep. Triple sec, mm -hmm. vodka, mm. blue curacao, and sweet and sour mix. And then you just build it all over ice in a highball glass, and then you st stir it before serving. So that's a lot of liquor. It's a lot of liquor. It reminds me of a... Uh... Black Superman? <laughs> no, I was going to say... I just spit on my mic. Adios, motherfucker. I was going to say uh, uh, Long Island. Oh, yeah. But, all but of those all, are essentially... Of, yeah, I would say all of the above. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, the first, my 21st birthday, I got um, a black Superman, right? Multiple black <laughs> Supermans. Okay. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Cheers. It could use a little more triple sec, in my opinion, or maybe the um, sweet and sour mix. Yeah, probably. I it's, might. I'm okay. Like, I'll probably go. <laughs> okay. So we're back. She put a little more um, of the sweet and sour mix in it. A little better. A little, yeah, no, it's definitely better. I, if I were to make this again, which I could, mm -hmm. I could drink this again, mm -hmm. like lemon juice or something, or more, yeah. even more sweet and sour mix. Yeah, it needs just a tiny bit more sweetness to it. It it definitely tastes like the whole thing is liquor. <laughs> yeah, and I know I didn't go over the ingredients specific, like or the measurement amount of yeah. it, each ingredient, but um, it was like equal parts of everything almost. Yeah, so it's pretty looking. It's beautiful. Um, I feel like all blue. Yeah. Pure sow cow drinks are yeah. though. So um it is refreshing. Mm-hmm. For sure. It's strong. Yeah. Where do you rate it? <laughs> Seven. Yeah. Would have again. Would have again. Don't dislike for any particular reason. Won't necessarily come to my mind when I'm thinking through all of the cocktails for this season. Probably yeah. won't remember this one. We'll we'll never remember this one. We're going to talk about this one a year from now and not remember that we ever had a blue bike cocktail. Yeah, yeah ever. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I can definitely see the appeal to this drink if I was wanting to maybe feel tipsy quickly. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that, I mean, so that is a reason to maybe keep it 
in our minds. For sure. <laughs> so there's that. Yes. All right. I feel like it's like just mix ev- all the last little bits of alcohol you have in your <laughs> liquor cabinet because, you know, you always run out of everything at the yeah. same time. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. That's pretty much exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah I think that's perfect. That's a perfect description. <laughs> Lance Edward Gunderson was born on September 18th, 1971 in Texas. His mom, Linda, gave birth to him at 17, and in his own words, they essentially grew up together. His parents divorced when he was only two, and the following year, his mom would remarry a man named Terry Keith Armstrong, who would later adopt Lance. From Terry Armstrong's perspective, he treated Lance with, quote, tough love and pushed him to accomplish all he would one day. In fact, a, quote, that comes directly from Terry Armstrong is that quote, Lance would not be the champion he is today without me because I drove him. Mm. I drove him like an animal. Ew. So, yeah. So I don't like that at all. Also like, yeah, you drove him right to f- steroids. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I mean, that is something that he later said was like, I, maybe I am why he became the person that had to win at all cost. Maybe I'm the reason for that. Yeah. Maybe you are. Uh, if you ask Lance, though, Terry, quote, beat the shit out of me, unquote. Oh, so that's what he meant by Yeah, okay. by tough love. Yeah. Terry Armstrong and Lance's mom would divorce when Lance was about 15 years old. Lance has mentioned that he at one point was considering changing his last name, but he eventually stuck with it. I listened to him in this um documentary where he was just like lance gunderson that's such a lame name obviously i stuck with lance armstrong because that's such a cool name so it just being like a royal just dude <laughs> but just like a just a dude is what he was being so he stuck with armstrong both because he likes the name um but also because he felt at this point it was almost too late to change his name because the name Lance Armstrong was already becoming known. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was this early on. Yes. He would become an accomplished athlete at a very young age, competing in triathlons when he was only 12 or 13 years old. He ended up placing fourth in the entire state of Texas for the 1,500-meter freestyle and would win a junior triathlon when he was only 13 years old. Jeez. It's important to note that from a very young age, Lance Armstrong was a dick. <laughs> <laughs> As always, we cite all of our sources on our website, but I want to make a specific mention to the two-part documentary that ESPN put out last year called Lance, because it was from that documentary that someone was being interviewed, um, and this was someone that Armstrong was competing with when they were both kids. Yeah. And he described Armstrong as, quote, mouthy and disrespectful, unquote, and that one time when riding up next to him on his bike, he yelled, come on, you f***ing that's so interesting because not that I w- I've ever felt like I knew I know everything about Lance mm-hmm. Armstrong. I never was like a huge fan of mm-hmm. his or mm-hmm. anything like that. But like my perception was always like a ge- gentleman, like a good guy. <laughs> yeah. But I'm already seeing that's not no. true. And that's the thing that I would say about Armstrong. Like the reason we're doing this, the this episode is number one, because it does fall in line with like what we cover on the podcast. He totally did make history he is a historical figure he certainly is controversy conspiracy and corruption Mm -hmm. but also because i'm just fascinated by this story and i always have been and one of those reasons is because i find him such a pompous arrogant person and i always have yeah i i guess i could see the arrogance Mm -hmm. definitely like in the few interviews i've seen of him and stuff but i don't know 
I never would have pictured him yelling that on his bike while he's passing another 16-year-old. Oh, you, you're in for a treat. I'm ready. I'm or, ready. Or not a treat because it's awful. No, I'm um, I'm ready. Okay. Let's f-ing go. Okay. Just as I continue on, just know that like one of the consistent things that comes up when people describe Lance mm-hmm. is that he's a bully. Okay. That's that is that is like the one adjective that kept coming up. Hmm. He's a bully. Hmm. At only 16 years old, he went pro as a triathlete. He would become a national triathlon champion in 1989 and 1990 at only 18 and 19 years old, respectively. By 1992, he had transitioned exclusively to cycling. This was also the year that he began cycling professionally with the Motorola cycling team. He would go on to win the World Race Championship a year later, becoming the second youngest man to win in world road racing. He was only like 21, 22 at this time, making like really good money. Yeah. And... He would also later admit that it was around this time that he began doping. He also competed in the Tour de France in 1993 and 1995 and won stages both times, but would eventually withdraw from those races. So let's do some background on the Tour de France. I think most people are familiar with it, of course, but basically it's a men's bicycle race, which FYI, this is just a side tangent. Uh, Women will actually be competing in their own Tour de France next year in 2022, the first time since the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to mention that, of course. Anyway, Tour de France, typically it's a men's bicycle race that goes through France with a route that changes each year, consisting of 21 stages over 2,000 miles, taking place over the course of 23 days. It began in 1903 as a promotional tool for the Lotto. Say that again. Lotto. And then on my end, it says L apostrophe auto newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what initially actually the Tour de France started as was just like a promotional tool for this newspaper. I believe it. Since 1903, there have only been two times in history when the Tour de France didn't take place, and that was during the two world wars. Even during the 2020 coronavirus pandemic, they postponed the race by like a month, but it still happened in 2020. I mean, I was that was going to be my next question when you were like, only mm-hmm. two times has it been canceled? That was going to be like, is one last year? Yeah. Uh, but no. Is one the Spanish flu and is the next one the, <laughs> the, the coronavirus? Yeah. But then I'm also like, it's like such a singular sport like an individual sport i i see why they still did it because like yeah. i don't see the risk in the the sport happening sure. obviously the crowds and it's and all stuff. outdoors it's all outdoors yeah. obviously the crowds and stuff though i could see that still being a concern yeah participating in the tour is like terrifying if you know the over 2,000 miles in 23 days things didn't already scare you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure anyone that's watched the tour before has seen how all the riders collect in a pack as they're racing. This is called a peloton. It consists of roughly 200 riders that are only millimeters away from each other as they are racing at approximately 25 miles per hour. No, this reminds, like, whenever Nico and I go on a bike ride, if he gets, like, to, within <laughs> a, going too a fast. couple, no, oh. <laughs> no, just, like, too close to me, yeah. I'm always sure that, like, our wheels are somehow going to attach to yeah. each other. And, and gonna we're going to flip over the handlebars. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm like, get the back <laughs> up. Yeah. And the other thing, too, like, when you watch professional cyclists, their bikes look nothing like ours. Yeah. Like, they're all, but I mean, like, they're scarier. Like, the the, the, the tires are thinner. Yeah. Um, they're all, they're super, super wobbly because they're super light and super agile. So yeah, like they're even scarier than our bikes that we take to 
bike to Starbucks. Our beach cruisers. <laughs> yeah. Our, my beach cruiser that I take to a coffee shop. Yeah. Yeah. So if you are at the front of the Peloton, you literally reduce the wind for the riders in the back of the Peloton by up to 40%. I find that crazy. Like, obviously, the person at the front is taking the brunt, but by 40%. Yeah, that's if you're pretty at the crazy. Back, that's crazy. And one small mistake, one little mishap can take a whole group of riders down. Yeah. In fact, most agree that Peloton crashes are a matter of if, not when. Decisions are made in split seconds, and they better be the correct decision because those split seconds could literally be the difference between winning and losing. <sighs> terrifying. <Yeah. laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah. The Tour de France is obviously a primarily European event. It was actually Lance Armstrong that really brought American interest to the event. I bet everybody was like, this guy bring, oh, oh, bring in the interest of the Americans over here. Yeah, like, gee, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And Americans have lost a lot of interest in it since his departure from the sport. I mean, I can say that for myself. Like, I haven't watched it in the last several years. I don't think I've ever watched it, so I oh. can't say that I... My interest had any interest <laughs> afterwards. Um, I, I mean, I can just say for myself, I watched it when he was in it and I haven't watched it since then. Yeah. For example, there were only four Americans competing in the tour in 2021 and then only three competing in 2020. Mm. Like I mentioned earlier, Armstrong would compete in the Tour de France a couple of times in the early 1990s, but would end up withdrawing each time. He also rode in the 1996 Atlanta Olympic Games. We've talked about that in an episode. Yep. But finished in sixth place in the time trials and 12th in the road race. Despite the fact that he was starting to look more fatigued and suffered from a bad case of bronchitis, he still was high ranking and would sign on with France's Copidas team, a two-year, $2 million contract for a 24-year-old. Can you imagine having that much money at 24 years old? No. <laughs> I, I can't Actually, imagine having that much money now. Oh, yeah. No, I was trying to put myself back at 24. Um, I, w I mean, of course, I was working full time. I was out of college, but it was still like. Like not. Like I wasn't making frivolous Amazon purchases. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was not in a place to buy Starbucks every day. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> at only 25 years old. Armstrong had already built himself a stunning mansion in Austin, Texas. And when they were training in Europe and the rest of the team was living in like a bachelor pad together, Armstrong had his own European vacation home along the lake. Oh my God. At like 24, 25 years old. It was also right around this time that Armstrong introduces himself to a man named McKelly Ferrari. Ferrari was a doctor and cycling coach who was super controversial as he was openly known to be associated with the performance-enhancing drug EPO. In fact, he had been the team doctor for the Italian cycling team. Do you want to try the pronunciation of the Italian team? Juice Ballin. Ballin? Yes. Actually, that was great. Okay. Juice Ballin. Okay. That was great. Between the years of 1993 and 1997, dominated cycling competitions, including the Tour de France, in crazy astronomical, never-before-seen ways. This instantly led people to believe the team must be using EPO. Ferrari didn't help in dispelling these rumors when his response to being asked if he was treating his team with EPO was, no, but that if he was, quote, EPO is not dangerous. It's the abuse that is. It's also dangerous to drink 10 liters of orange juice, unquote. <laughs> yeah, but it's also unfair to dope your fucking team yeah, in a it's professional also illegal. yeah it's not illegal to drink orange juice 
I know, like, the comparison there is, like, uh, one is illegal and one is not. It's like, nobody was questioning if it was dangerous or not. They're saying it's not allowed. Yeah, they're saying that's unfair <laughs> and not cool. We don't, nobody gives a shit if it's dangerous. You're choosing to take, I mean. Well, well, no, I think you're right. Like, the dangerous piece to it in that ESPN documentary that I watched, like, Armstrong was saying, you know, people saying it's dangerous to have been using performance enhancing drugs. It's dangerous to get on a bike and and do the Tour de France. Like that is dangerous. Yeah, like life threat. Like it, no, it is life threatening. Yeah. So you know, to take the leap of like it's so dangerous to use EPO. It's like they were putting their lives at risk every single day. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know that Elvis once showed up to the White House high as a kite with a bunch of guns? Did you know that Eleanor Roosevelt once had a romantic relationship with a lesbian reporter? Hi, we're Stephanie. And Tux. From Beyond Reproach, a comedic history podcast where we talk about political scandals like how FDR's grandfather made the family fortune smuggling dope. And messy government officials like President Johnson, who named his dick Jumbo and would wave it around at people on Capitol Hill. Gross. (laughs) And we do it all while drinking period-appropriate historic cocktails, like JFK's favorite, the lime Daiquiri. We are not historians. We're just a couple of drunks who never shut up and love history. We hope you'll join us on Beyond Reproach for some big facts, good laughs, a little bit of swearing, a lot of drinking, and a real good time. You can find Beyond Reproach wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For some background, EPO or erythropoietin is a hormone that is produced naturally, but it is also available as a drug that can be used as a performance enhancing technique. Essentially, what it does is cause the body to produce more red blood cells. Since red blood cells are the ones that carry oxygen throughout the body, particularly to the muscles, obviously having more oxygen in your bloodstream can increase an athlete's performance. It's like those guys that like tape open their nose when they're like <laughs> lifting and stuff so that they can get more yeah. oxygen in when they breathe. You know what? Now that you just said that right now, that makes me, um, Alex and I have started getting back into running and now I feel like I need to do that. Yeah. Tape open your nose. that's one of the hardest parts of running is just managing my breathing. So while the long-term effects of EPO are still unknown, we do know that using it in incorrect dosages short-term can lead to blood clotting, heart attacks, and strokes. Armstrong began training confidentially with Ferrari in 1995, and he oddly, like coincidentally, started kicking ass after what? that. Yeah, I don't like cause and effect. I don't know very much about that. It stuff. must be Ferrari. Must be a really good coach. He's yeah. He was he, the physical therapy was mm. really doing it. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> People noticed a difference in Armstrong, both physically and verbally. Physically, he dropped weight and started sweeping in competitions. Verbally, he no longer spoke badly about people that doped in cycling. Hmm. In fact, he began hunting down people that spoke outwardly about the dangers of doping and called them rats. He's a great guy. How did, like, why was it so shocking to everyone then? I just don't. That he was doping? Yeah. I feel like it was like a bombshell went off. And that's why I guess I always assumed that he had this nice guy persona. Because, like, why else this nice guy, straight, straight edge, like, mm-hmm. just normal guy persona, because mm-hmm. why else would everybody freak out when they found out he was I doping think, if he's being a dick? And yeah. like, I think it's a couple things, and we will be getting, in, obviously, into more of it. Mm-hmm. I think one of the largest things is even regardless of the amount of evidence that there is, if you, to my face, tell me for 10 years that you're not doing it mm-hmm. because I want to believe the best and you're looking me in the eyeballs and you're saying it, yeah. hopefully, you know, like, regardless of whatever evidence there is, 
and it's never definitively been proven, regardless of all these rumors, I think there has to be something said about when someone is looking you in the eyeball for over a decade, telling you a lie, you don't think you'd believe it? I... Not if he's all not if I was also going around and like, let's say, let's say in this instance, Mm -hmm. I'm doing drugs and I Mm -hmm. tell you to your face every time, you know, that I'm not doing drugs. I I swear I'm not on crack. I swear. Yeah. But then I like go on the news and say like, no, anybody who like rats out crack addicts is a piece of shit. (laughs) Like they can come talk to me. You have a point there, too. I feel like that's contradictory. And I, I would I would. Yeah. I don't know. And then the other level that I would place on this that obviously we're going to get into further in the episode is the amount of influence and power and the number of connections that Armstrong had that no one that kind of knew what was going on would speak out against him. That I could see. So maybe from a distanced public perspective, you have this guy that's doing all these press conferences saying, I'm not doping. Will you leave me alone? You Mm want to believe the best. Okay. Yeah. Especially when you're betting on them, right, guys? <laughs> there's that, too. <laughs> so There's actually this incident that would not occur for a handful of years later, but I think it's important to mention it here, again, just so we know like what kind of guy we're dealing with here. An Italian cyclist by the name of Filippo Simeone was also treated by Dr. Ferrari for some time and would later testify that Ferrari had given him EPO and human growth hormone as part of his treatment. Armstrong instantly went on the defense and publicly called Simeone a liar, And then in the 2004 Tour de France that they were both competing in, despite the fact that Armstrong had a strong lead and was essentially already guaranteed to win, he aggressively chased Simeone down during the race, put his hand on his back and said to him in part, quote, you made a mistake when you testified against Ferrari. I have a lot of time and a lot of money and I can destroy you. And then Armstrong did something so chilling that I want us to watch it here. I will post a screenshot of this to our Instagram for all of our listeners to check out, but I want you to watch like the live video footage of it, Leah. Okay. Isn't that creepy? Wait, was that like right after you did that? Yes. He did this to the camera. Ew. That creeps you out, doesn't it? (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. Like glee. Do you want to describe what he did? Oh yeah. So like, Apparently, this happened right after that incident took place. Mm-hmm. And he looks at the camera. He's riding his bike still, right? And he mm-hmm. looks at the camera with glee. On- I can only describe it as glee on his face. Yeah. And, like, makes the, like, my lips are sealed, like, zipping up my lips motion and, like, smiles and stuff. It's chilling, right? Again, that event there would not take place until 2004. But I felt it was important to mention it here so that you can understand just how ardently Armstrong defended any allegations that Ferrari treated his cyclists with EPO because, well, Armstrong was one of his cyclists and he was treating him with EPO. <laughs> but we'll get to that later. Oh, my gosh. I, like, I was so off base. I'm, I'm, this is... I- this is good. Oh, yay. I'm glad. I think that my perspective on this is a little bit different because I did watch his races and stuff, mm-hmm. and I stayed, like, semi-involved, as much as you can as a kid, right, in this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, But even still, like, I could tell he was a douche. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just because he's arrogant. Like, yeah. the way that he speaks, I would watch him, you know, do press conferences and stuff, and he's he's just arrogant. You know, there's this interview of him when he was 22 years old. He was, like, just coming up on the professional cycling scene. And he's talking about how he's going to kick everyone's asses. Like, and that, that, those are like the types of interviews he was doing. Yeah. See, I guess I. Like that's I, unprofessional and that's tacky and that's gross and that's super arrogant. 
Yeah, I guess I've, I I have to admit that I was I was just not aware. Like I yeah. well, I, I didn't mean, watch Tour de France. If I saw interviews, it was like maybe a certain clip that was on the evening yeah. news, or you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, so. I think it's worth mentioning that like we were children. What? <laughs> we were babies <laughs> when when this was going on. Like I w- I was a kid. Yeah. Like elementary school, middle school. Watching yeah. him, I had much more important things on my mind, <laughs> like Rugrats and. <laughs> They're very different childhoods. Yeah, yeah, 100%. (laughs) So rewinding back to about 1996, Armstrong began to notice and subsequently ignore severe pain in his testicle. He's riding bikes all day. That's exactly it. He assumed, I mean, I'm on a bike every single day. Yeah. Maybe that's why. But in 1996, when he began coughing up blood, he realized it might be more serious. Yeah. In October of 1996, at only 25 years old, he went to see a doctor about his symptoms. When the doctor returned with Armstrong's x-rays, he told Armstrong that he had stage 3 testicular cancer that had spread beyond his testicle and into his lungs, brain, abdomen, and lymph nodes. The doctor told Armstrong that the cancer was so serious that he had scheduled him for surgery the very next morning to have the cancerous testicle removed. (sighs) Like I mentioned at the top of the episode... Armstrong was given a less than 50% chance at life. And in an interview the doctor later did, he actually said that he told Armstrong this 50% number just to give him some hope. His actual chances were much, much lower than that. Armstrong would later undergo brain surgery to remove the cancer from there and chemotherapy to remove the cancer elsewhere throughout his body. Despite all of this, Armstrong continued to train on the bike. He was declared cancer-free by February of 1997, but shortly thereafter, Team Kofidis canceled his contract. It's sad, but I mean, like, no one has faith in this guy who just received months of cancer treatment. No one wanted to sponsor a professional cycling career that no one believed he would ever be able to successfully return to. Yeah, I yeah, I guess. That's not an outrageous thing to say, really. Yeah. It's sad, but it's not outrageous. No. After several failed attempts to sign with another team, the only one willing to take a chance on Armstrong was the United States Postal Service or USBS. And I know that this is just like 2020 hindsight because it's so funny to me to learn that USPS was like a last resort because if you've watched Armstrong in the Tour de France races, we all know how iconic the USPS jersey is. So it's super funny just to me to hear that this was like Armstrong's last choice and not like what he wanted. Because it's just so iconic now. I, I don't know. see again. I'm coming from an outsider point mm. of view. I didn't know that USPS sponsored him, and mm. so I'm like, yeah, that's kind that's of funny. Super lame. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's lame. lame. And, and it was. It was. So you're looking at it with good perspective, like, yeah. like honest, authentic perspective. <laughs> like, Me, I'm looking at it like, oh my god, I saw that jersey cross the finish line how many times yeah of course that's a team everyone wanted to be on usps but like no it was the lame team no i'm like u.s postal service is going under like very and have been, and, and have been for decades yeah. so yeah. like the fact that they're sponsoring i don't know it's just funny and and me i have completely different perspective yeah you're like oh, so cool it's so cool <laughs> it's so cool uh usps only offered armstrong two hundred thousand a year which is a pretty steep decline from the kind of money that he was earning years before yeah, like $2 million for a two-year contract <laughs> right. or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. That same year, Armstrong began the Lance Armstrong Foundation, also known as Live Strong, a nonprofit organization that helped to raise awareness and support for cancer patients and survivors. Do you remember the bracelets? Yeah. Oh, oh for okay. sure. Did you have one? No. Okay. I no, it, it's I also fine. Had that. <laughs> I probably would have loved to have one just because they were like really cool. They were so, so cool. popular. 
Um, but no, I just didn't ever happen to get one. Um, I, I feel this was at the time when I was in middle school and literally every single person I knew had one. No, or yeah. That's how it felt. And, or, and they didn't just have one. Like most people were like five Multiple, multicolored yeah. ones yes. all up their arms. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So for anyone that doesn't remember them or just never knew about them, they were these like yellow silicone bracelets that were developed by Nike and they had the word live strong on them. By 2013, some 80 million Livestrong bracelets had been sold. Yeah. Which, I mean, that like that to me isn't super surprising because, like I said, it felt like when I was in middle school, every single person had one and you could get them for a dollar. And there, there were even like knockoff ones. Yes. They're, they're, <laughs> that's my next line. But yeah, no, there were like... Um, like that was fashion. <laughs> it, it was fashion. And they were so successful that then other like charities, charity organizations started doing these little silicone bracelets or even I think I just had one that said something like cute or something on it. You know what I mean? Like it just had like some random word on it. Love and peace or something. They were fashion. Yeah. And it started, though, with Nike and with the Livestrong Foundation. The Livestrong Foundation really changed lives. The impact of this organization cannot be understated. Because of Livestrong, there were hospitals in the early 2000s that had the full funding to provide free programs to cancer survivors. It also funded free one-on-one services for people with cancer to assist them through their journey in hospitals and even in their relationships with loved ones. Livestrong has helped over 100,000 people since it began in 1997. And despite all we already know about Armstrong and all we are yet to learn, it has never appeared to me as though he was disingenuous when it came to the Livestrong program. He did not achieve any financial gain by being a part of the program. He just wanted to help people get through what he had gone through himself. With the popularity of his cancer survivorship and the creation of the Livestrong Foundation, there were a lot of people really excited to hear that Armstrong would be competing in the Tour de France in 1999. 1999 was an exceptionally interesting year for those participating in the Tour de France, though. This particular year was coming on the heels of what became known as the Festina Affair. Just days before the previous year's tour, the 1998 tour, was to commence, the physiotherapist for the Festina cycling team was stopped by customs at the French-Belgian border, where it was discovered that he was carrying hundreds of grams of EPO, steroids, narcotics, growth hormones, amphetamines, testosterone, and a shit ton of syringes. Like, check that shit in the mail, dude. <laughs> no, let's just take it across borders, right? Or like, yeah. check your baggage, man. Like, I don't know. try to go through security with that shit. I, I know. I couldn't even get through... Uh, security with my shampoo remember oh. yeah i will never forget actually it was my face wash it wasn't my shampoo it was my expensive face wash i i'm a moron it's okay okay when officers of the french police searched the festina headquarters they literally found a document there that outlined exactly what doses of what drugs at what times to give which team members hmm. although the team would deny doping <laughs> and would refuse to withdraw from the race, they did end up getting expelled after the race was completed when the team director admitted to systematic doping of the whole team. It's just amazing to me how long these people deny when it's like the evidence is like all there. Yeah. <laughs> you can't. You can't. Like, just because it's on in my bag doesn't mean I was going to use it to dope the team. Like what? I wasn't really going to use it. No, it was just like it just makes me feel better to have it there, you know? that's that's so great like yeah i have it i'm not using it though (laughs) come on 
This was bigger than just getting expelled from the race, though. When this affair had ended, nine of the Festina riders and three officials were all taken into police custody and forced to give samples. Despite this, there were still a couple of team members that continued to deny doping. And of those that did admit to it, they had plenty of excuses, one saying he was forced to dope by the Festina team, another saying he didn't realize EPO was against the rules. So stupid. I know. What the Festina doping scandal did was open up all of the other teams to the same level of scrutiny. Good. The Dutch cycling team, known as the TVM team, was found to have over 100 vials of EPO in their team vehicle. Officials also found additional drug paraphernalia back at the team hotel. The whole team, along with their officials, would be taken into police custody and forced to give samples. Many of the cyclists competing in the tour stood in solidarity with the riders that were being expelled. In fact, check out a picture here. This is from stage 12 of the tour, and tell me what you see. Oh, they're having to sit out. Yeah. They're, they're all just sitting next to their bikes, I'm assuming, on the map like on the route Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um obviously sitting out because solidarity man (laughs) yeah so you can see there in that picture in the foreground was marco pantani he would end up winning the 1998 tour de france and we're going to be talking about him again shortly but yes exactly what you said they all were just sitting down in protest during the tour my impression yeah it's a systemic issue and not like oh a couple individual teams here because why else would everybody be supporting it if not if everybody wasn't doping that's exactly it if you were clean you'd be like yeah those guys yeah please no i'd be i'd be pissed please get them out of the race because now me riding clean maybe has a fair honest chance oh my gosh yeah yeah i know that's why that's why they stood in solidarity everyone was doping Eventually, five teams would all voluntarily withdraw from the tour. They said they were doing so in solidarity with the expelled writers, but it would later be found that future raids of these teams would also lead to the discovery of performance-enhancing drugs, exactly like you just said. Mm -hmm. At the time of the 1998 Tour de France, there wasn't official testing for EPO. Since then, though, many of the samples provided during the 1998 tour have been retroactively tested, revealing that a large percentage, again, like you said, of the riders were doping, including the first place winner, Marco Pantani, the guy that we just saw in that picture during the protest, as well as the second and third place winners. Something I'm going to say that this is not justifying it or making it fair, but this is a superhuman event. You yeah. Know what I mean? Like it's it's literally considered to be the most difficult sporting event in the world and so i'm not justifying it at all but it's like the expectation that these people could do it yeah you know with normal blood levels and normal hormone levels well they could do it they just couldn't do it as fast or exactly good and then and and then what's the point in them competing if they can't keep up with everybody else who happens to be doping so oh that justifies me doping as well that's Uh, and then the next guy has the exact same that's the argument is that why would you compete in the Tour de France, if everyone else is doping, you have no chance if you're not also doping. Yeah. Following the 1998 Festina affair, the World Anti-Doping Agency, or WADA, WADA <laughs> yep, or WADA, was created to put a stop to doping within professional sports. We've actually, we've become more familiar with WADA in recent years due to the huge announcement that they made in 2019 to ban Russia from the Olympics and other major sporting events for four years as a result of their excessive doping practices. I love seeing the, it's not Russia, um, at the Olympics, it's like, 
individual athletes oh, f- from Russia or from whatever. From the Russian Federation yeah. or like something like, like <laughs> yes. It's like, that's embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> I, lo- I, I love it. Every time yeah. like at the opening ceremonies, I would just like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Individuals from the Russian Federation. Yeah. And it is this environment, an environment where Wada was watching athletes every move following the Festina affair that Lance Armstrong would put himself in when he competed and won his first Tour de France the following year in 1999. Mm. But that and all of the crazy doping scandals we have yet to even touch on will be discussed in next week's part two episode. Gotcha. Gotcha. There's no way we can cover all this in one. No. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Hashtag History. We will share the pictures that we discussed in the episode to our Instagram and all sources used to put together this episode can be found on our website at hashtag history pod.com. Subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform you use, share about us with your family and friends, and then give us a rate and review. And be sure to check us out on Instagram at hashtag history underscore podcast. We also have started a TikTok. Uh, so check us out on there at hashtag history all one word and on twitter at hashtag history underscore yes and then come join us over on patreon where for as little as a dollar a month you can help support our books and booze supply you will also get access to behind the scenes content weekly hashtag hangout episodes we mail you cards and stickers all the good stuff all the goods thank you thanks bye Yeah, boy. <laughs> okay. I've never sat like this. I know. This is kind of weird, usually, but I don't mind. I just didn't want to bring those no, pictures in here for, two, for episodes. two episodes. Yeah. Not worth it. No, I, I mean, I kind of like this. It feels almost professional. Oh, cool. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Come know, on. We're already messing up. No. <laughs> you think I can't pronounce that? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? Are you, why are you looking at me? No, it's because... I normally say Tour de France. That's how you would say it, right? You don't say Tour yeah, de France. But I mean, I, but I normally say it, and then I almost said France, and I don't normally say that. Okay. I mean, like, you're, we're Americans, so. <laughs> so I can say it however. Yeah. I just want to be consistent, is all. Yeah, definitely. Consistency <laughs> is good. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Oh so my God, right on, now. You can't pronounce France. <laughs> Tour. <laughs> duh. <laughs> it's, it's the duh that's really hard. <laughs> A route that route. A route that route. Yes. (laughs) A route. Thank you. (laughs) I almost made the edit myself and I was like, ignore it. Just move past it. (laughs)